Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to artists about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with Kevin Whelan, currently of Aeon Station and also of The Wrens. We talked about Rush's 1981 album, Moving Pictures. We also chat about playing bass as left-handed folks and sticking with playing music, but being willing to start again. Aeon Station released their debut album, Observatory, recently on Sub Pop, and I would highly recommend checking that out. Quick note, there's a little bit of background noise in this episode, but nothing too distracting. Please check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we talk about records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. Subscribe for as little as $1 a month and get an exclusive episode every week. Really helps us keep doing what we're doing here, and we super appreciate your support. So check that out. Okay, had a great chat with Kevin, so no more delays. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? Uh, It's going well. Thanks so much for having me. So today we are talking about Rush's 1981 album, Moving Pictures. It's their eighth record that came out on Anthem Records, and it was produced by Rush and Terry Brown. So what I'll ask is, when was the first time you heard Rush or this album? Oh, wow. I I lived in South Jersey, uh, which in the 70s was like living in the deep reaches of Virginia, right? Or Tennessee. Uh, we didn't have a local grocery store. We had to drive, you know, a half hours to go to, you know, department stores and all that kind of stuff. So it was really remote. We didn't have much access to music or any of that, but I had an older brother. So I might've been in, you know, six, seven years old and he would play the uh, Rush Fly By Night record and he would play the early Rush records in his room uh, on his record player. And it would just be like, what is this crazy music? What is that high voice? And uh, it sort of, you know, caught me then, but it wasn't until, you know, Rush Moving Pictures where it brought in that era of of the Walkman and cassette tapes. And I remember living with that cassette tape and really it it was like an awakening for me to hear music like that so close in my ears, so complex, but so rocking. and, And it was a short record, but it was so dense. And I just lived in that world. And this was, you know, in, in this is when it, around the time it came out. So that was, uh, you know, uh, my world for many, many years. Yeah. And so, yeah. So since you were familiar with like that previous record, do you remember like how it kind of like hit you with the difference or did it feel like a big difference kind of going from fly by night into moving pictures? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a seismic difference, right? Because the, all the earlier stuff, really felt more bluesy, even though it was super, mm-hmm. you know, and I was completely way into Prague and loved all that stuff, you know, ELP. And yeah, so it was right up my alley. But but Rush always felt more kind of rock, you know, in a way, which I know yeah. it sounds crazy now when you look back on all of it, you know how progressive they were. But then when they came out with that moving pictures record, it just sort of captured everything. I remember being, I remember being in, you know, in I think I might have been in the fourth grade. And we were exchanging tapes and, you know, just given like that record was just, it sounded different. It sounded more electronic. It sounded more like vibrant, um, more in your face, really explosive, really tight. 
And I think it was something about it being a, a shorter record or seemingly like less songs where the impact was super powerful. Yeah. And yeah, with it being like a 40 minute long record, like every time I get to the end of it, I'm actually like surprised that it's over. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it it lends itself to like when I think of things like that are definitely more in the prog camp, like Yes or, you know, King Crimson, it's like you feel like early, in early Genesis, it's like those things like go on forever. But this is like, it took all of those elements, but it just was, it's funny that this is, this is like their radio hit because it's like when you size it up against like other kind of radio hits at the time, it's still like very complicated. Like even the most radio friendly rush ever got is still yeah, insane. I, 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 and that, that is sort of where they, they bent they, 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 they sort of bent the radio their way or the whole, you know, because you figure that was, that was videos and that was still in that age of like, you know, all those bands were coming in that you love all the new wave bands, mm-hmm. right? And for them to kind of come out with this, it wasn't new wave, but it didn't lose its, it had more relevance some way. It had more, you know, um, more power to it. And you're exactly right. It, it just goes so quickly and the technical aspects of it, especially because I was super, you know, into music and kind of a like a technical nerd, you know, and a, and a geek. Where I was like, how do you do those sounds and the bass and the drums and and his voice? And the songs were just so cool. I mean, to this day, when you heard Tom Sawyer on the radio, it was just, I don't know. I heard someone talking about songwriting recently where they said a great song, you know, requires surprises, right? Great songs should surprise you. And I think... Mm-hmm. And I never thought of it that way. And it's it really is a truth. And I think all of those songs, like when you remember hearing Tom Sawyer on the radio, it really surprised you. You're like, what is that? You know? Yeah. And and every time you mention any of the songs, you immediately want to start singing them. <laughs> and you want to like sing parts of this of the record. Or I, I know it's a super rush fan kind of thing, but you know. Yeah, I, I feel like like this is the record to tell someone that's either you know, into Prague or either just someone that's they're like, I don't think I like Rush. I feel like I would go check out Moving Pictures. You know, personally, yes. this is still the one I would pick for almost any situation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because even after that, I mean, they just continue to get bigger and bigger and, and more powerful. And uh, <clears throat> to this day, I've only seen three concerts. I, I mean, I should, I've seen thousands of concerts and shows and, you know, I've been so many doing music my whole life, but there's only been three concerts where the audience stood from the very first moment to the end of the show. They, there was no quiet section sit downs. And that was Ozzy Osbourne. It was uh, actually Barry Manilow and, wow. and it was Rush. Wow. It was, it's the only time I've ever been, and I've seen, you know, everything from Prince to, to who to whatever, but there's always been like that, like we're going to sit down part, but the Rush one, you know, not only did they not sit down, but when they were kind of doing those songs, it was really like, I don't know. So yeah, I, I think you're right. If anyone looks at any Rush record, they have to go to that one. Even if they know another hit from the radio, that record is is the seminal record for sure. Yeah, this is like one that I feel like it's kind of resets you into being, like it kind of reminded me how much of a Rush fan I was. You know, <laughs> like it's like, you're so used to hearing like limelight or even more so Tom Sawyer on the radio. Yeah. It's like you almost start, it just becomes like when I hear like a dire Straits song or, you know, whatnot, it's just like something that you're, you know, you're going to, it's going to be in that rotation, you know? Yeah. 
Um, yeah. But like to kind of hear it as like a whole package, it's like, I don't know how many years it had been. And I was struggling to be like, when was the last time I just sat down and was like, I'm going to listen to moving pictures, oh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, no, yeah no, you no, kind of totally. take it for granted in that way as a piece of work. Uh, and, and you forget, you know, when you, when you look at just, you know, even just that first side, you know, I remember, yes, we, you knew Tom Sawyer was the hit, but when you went to like, you know, the Red Parchetta, like the second track already, you know, which people don't really talk about except for Rush bands, you're just like, oh my God, this is just, you know, what is it? And, and the length of the songs never felt so lengthy. Like mm -hmm. that's the other part of it. They really, cause you're right. Yeah, even though it was a huge, I was a huge Yes fan, right? Cause of Rick Wakeman and Chris Squire and all those guys, you know, and when you're learning music, sort of at that same period, I, I, I started taking lessons when I was 13. So that was like in 1983, but kind of stepping up into music, you know, when I was you know, 10, 11, 12, I was listening to all those Yes records. So when you listen to a Yes record and there's one song of the entire side and you're just like, holy, it's yeah. too much. You know yeah. what I mean? You're just like, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> even though it's great, but you know, you look at YYZ, of course, and Limelight, it's just on the first side and you're, you're just you're mesmerized one thing that's like super interesting because since we were talking about yes is i don't know if like rush really gets the credit or maybe i don't think that they get the credit they deserve because i feel like after this point a lot of the prog bands kind of started yeah. going commercial in a way yeah. and it, yeah. so it's sort of like allowed people i almost wonder it's like if you were in yes and i know the like some of the records that they did, they were almost like a reconfiguration. It's like it was marketed as yes in a way. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's, they're complicated, but they're still like really poppy. But if you just listen to the music and the thing is like, they, like we were saying, well, like Rush kind of bent the radio to their whim. It started feeling yeah. like some of the kind of, you know, survive, you know, the members of Genesis and yes started kind of doing that. You know, yeah. You know, so. <clears throat> I, I, uh, I completely agree. The, uh, I think it is, that is the way, I think the way we're kind of characterizing it, it bent, it bent the audience and bent, you know, radio stations, which at the time was just bizarre, right? It's all payola and so different than what it is now, right? You know, and, and you figure they were just, you know, a Canadian band and, you know, they had so many things that kind of might not have been supporting them, but there, this record is, is absolutely one of those records in a band's career where it was the evolution of their sound and their style and their commitment to what they were doing. Whereas you're exactly right. When you look at Yes in the early 80s records, you have like drama and you have those, are, which are great, <clears throat> but they're not like the Yes record. It wasn't the, the epitome of where they were going as Yes. And then they came out with 90214. And I thought where you were headed is that I'm sure they were probably sitting there listening to that. They would probably admit it when they were listening to that Rush record, they're like, oh my God, how can we do what they just did with our format, right? And then of course they went super poppy, Yes. But Rush just lays like the biggest and darkest and coolest and hardest sounding record they could ever do in succession of their their evolution, which I think that makes it even more incredible. And then I think <clears throat> they don't get as much credit as they really should, number one, for being a three piece, which is miraculous mm -hmm. and doing that. But I think they continue to bend the radio and the listeners and what fans can appreciate for, for many years after that, right? You know, even though they went more poppy as well and they kind of found that that new space, they, um, you know, uh, they didn't fall off the cliff after that, such a huge height, which is yeah. hard. 
Yeah, because they it's like they don't drop like the musicianship. There's even parts where it's like when I think of some of the time, actually, I don't even have to think of the timing on a lot of this record. Then I feel like yeah. that's when it's yeah. like done the best. It's like if I almost don't have to think about what time signature a song is in, then I yeah. think you won. You know, because yeah. there's so many, like, I, I had to read through it, and it's like, I know it's complicated because it's like Neil Burton yeah. and really everybody involved. Yeah, but course, it's like, yeah. I'm reading about the time signature. It's like, oh, there's a 4-4, four, four, you know, kind of beat, and then it's like the drums are on some other thing. And it's like, oh, I didn't even, I, I see where that is, but I don't have to think about it when I'm listening to the song. Because sometimes they no. feel like an exercise, and it doesn't for Rush. Yeah, exactly. And how did they, how are they able to kind of take that you know, how are they able to take that in their, their space? And you and I sitting here, how many years, you know, uh, 40 years later, right? Give or take. Um, we're sitting here still feeling like that's an equal pop song to like message in a bottle, which is sort of around the same period when it came out. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about like, like pop songs, yeah. you and I would talk about, you know, Tom Sawyer in that same way where it's like, no, it's a pop song. You're like, wow, it's kind of not a really normal pop song, you yeah, know, but not. they were able to do the time signatures and, and the weird kind of driving things. And um, uh, yeah, it's, it, you're exactly right. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever even thought about the time signatures ever. I've never even gone back. To I think that's the best yeah. way. Like you've, they yeah. succeeded. And <laughs> it's like, you know, there's, there's like conversations or it's like one of the Soundgarden records. Um, it's like, oh, it's in this time, you know, and yeah, it's yeah. like, but I don't have to think about it when I'm listening to the song. And I'm like, oh, that that's great. You know, because sometimes when I'm listening to something that's, you know, I guess math rock or complicated. Yeah, it's like, techie, yeah. You know, it's like, I'll, you know, do you want a pat on the back? It's like sometimes how I feel, <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, I love listening to it. But sometimes it's like you need a break. But this goes down so smooth while having all of those elements that with other records, I would be like, OK, I get it. I need a break now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you're 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 hitting it on the head. Is that when you hear you know math rock things, they're usually doing it in the math rock section, right? Like they have like now we're going to prepare the math, and now yeah. we're going to rock in the math part of it of the song, um, you know. Whereas this record, or bands that really do it so well, they flow in and out so naturally, and you feel the you as a listener feel like these rhythmic changes are natural to that. I couldn't imagine. I've, I've never done that. I've never yeah, done that. I mean, I wouldn't be able to, I can critique on it, but I wouldn't be able to succeed <laughs> on it, you know? Or to even do it, right? It's like, okay, well, now we're going to go into the five, four section. It's like, no, no, we're probably not. We're going to yeah, stay in four, I, I four. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think that what's really interesting is just speaking about like the way I write a song, it's like, yeah. When I write lyrics, like if, if I'm keeping in mind, because I'm a fellow bass player, it's like yeah, yeah. I'm kind of doing within the confines of what I can do, you know? Yeah. And it's like to to realize that like Neil Peart writes the lyrics, it's like I, I fit the lyrics based on like what I my fingers will allow me to sing to do both together in a way. <laughs> you know, that's really how it works for most people. No but doubt. It's like, yeah, 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 you yeah. Know, yeah. And it's 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 amazing to think that it's like so I assume that all of these songs completely arrived from just jam sessions in a way, you know, and that's not uncommon, of course. Yeah. But it's like when you're thinking of your drummer writing 
the lyrics for the bass player to sing when they're already doing so much heavy lifting. And that's kind of the main point. It's astounding in that way to even get to a point above all of that to write a hook. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so, uh, it's so true. And you, you know, you, re you recall that that was sort of always a talking point, even back when I was a kid, you know, that the drummer wrote these lyrics that were sort of out there and kind of, you know, not, not like the other prog rockers where it was sort of like spacey and kind of un, you know, unkind of like you couldn't associate with it, with it. You know, uh, this one of the moving pictures, the lyrics really matched the intensity of the music, you know, and you're exactly right. And then it sort of made it that it was a holistic band. You know, it really wasn't just the one guy, right? It wasn't just a Trent Reznor where it's like lyrics and I'm the guy and everyone else sort of does you know, what it's about, you know, Rush made it, I think it was that combination of someone kind of imagining the lyrics over this music that they're making. And then to be able to write really cool lyrics that seemed cutting edge and fitting with the music, but then hand them off to a singer who was so acclaimed and practiced and so, right, you know, you, you uh, identifiable. I mean, you'd have to argue that he, he is by far one of the most identifiable, you know, singers on the planet, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think what I was remembering I was going to mention uh, was like a lot of times when you're listening to something like math rock, like the exercise is the thing, but like, yeah, I think about like metal stuff, you know, it's like there are like metal bands that kind of get to you and you're like, it feels like it's like I can see that you know all the scales and the arpeggios, but I yeah. don't hear a song. And I know yeah. that can be a subjective thing, but it's like, I still feel that there's a song here. You know, it's like there is the exercise, but there is the yeah. song. Yeah. What what a what a beautiful point, right? Because I uh, I not studied long, but I studied hard. Like I had a piano teacher, and I went to a, a, a you know a really good you know. So I got into high school. I went to a really good kind of music kind of weekend school, right? So I'd spend all day um, at you know at this college, you know this this professor, and we would do everything from like solfege and counterpoint writing and all of this really technical musical stuff, and um, and then I I you know I went to college and I you know minored in classical piano, right? So I was super into the chops aspect of all of this part of music, and I loved I just loved all the the theory of it. But you're exactly right. It's it's almost it's almost impossible to have somebody who's so equipped at scales be that much of a rocker, mm -hmm. that good. And then to turn it into a song that's that good. I mean, what, what they have done, put components together that just so few people in the world can really do, for, for sure, right? There's, there's always a great singer, right? How many great yeah. singers are there in the world? You know, you watch you know, American Idol, like every, every Monday, there's like a million, oh my God, they just have talent. Or you have a lot of, you know, good singer songwriters, or sometimes you even kind of have like these cool like bands that have, you know, they might not have the technical chops, but they just come together and they make these kind of cool things. But just like you said, just keep stacking it, right? Like you have this amazing drummer, you have this bizarrely incredible guitar player, this almost, you know, like godlike bass, like bass player, singer, keyboard guy. And they just took it to these insane levels. You know? Yeah, because what I think about those kind of, I mean, it's happened all throughout music history, but it felt like it happened a lot in like the 80s and 90s where it's like almost they pick all of these people that are like 
the best in their field. And it's like, we have Steve Vai on guitar and we have this singer. And then it's like the labels kind of create a version of it. And it's like, and then eventually I'm like, I've never heard of this band in my life, you know, but it's like when you separated every person, it's like they were the best in their field, you know? And it's like, but, but somehow (laughs) that's not the story we're telling with Rush. It's like, these are people that could be plugged into the system and been, the best bass player, the best drummer, the best. And me, you know. yeah, absolutely incredible music. But <laughs> what you're plugging into, I think, with the the lyric kind of thing, you're plugging into the world of a band. And there's there's nothing, especially you know, I live my life in a band. And um, there's just nothing like that dynamic. Uh, all of the complexities that go into it, all of the weird idiosyncrasies, all of the building, all of the time right, all of the, the dream building together, right, it's, uh, and I think Rush not only could be technical, they they also could translate their music into kind of like a modern appetite, you know, because a lot of technical guys will just stay in the technical world and impress other technical people, right, so it's always like you go to these musician type shows, right, it's like, wow, they're so amazing, the drummers, and, but they actually had fans that had, yeah. you know, that not like you and I that kind of have like a liking for technical music, yeah, uh, you know, which is, it's it's just unheard of. That's why there's really, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if we'll get into it, but I don't think there's really anyone you can kind of compare to them. Well, one right? thing that and, I was thinking of, and it they sound nothing alike, it's almost like they made the same decision and stayed just the band that they were. Is like ZZ Top had similar kind of things where it was just like, we know what type of band we are and we want to always be, but how can we kind of bend it to be a part of this era? with yeah. but still be ourselves but but sonically they they did it in such different ways that's the only it's, comparison it's, i can think of it, it's a really good comparison right uh, i don't know if you saw that recent documentary on them and i yeah I did, I did. as a mat as a matter of fact i just listened to them today you know um tush or whatever and uh you're exactly right you know you figure they were technical experts as well but they knew they were technical in rhythm and blues but then they kind of transcended it and they didn't yeah. stop but like, it was still, you know, it was still weirdly still rhythm and blues, but in space. <laughs> in space. And, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, Jerry McDonald, who, uh, who's the drummer for the Wrens and also now plays drums with, uh, Eon Station, uh, you know, he swears that the best live concert he's ever seen was, was Prince and, and ZZ Top. These two, right? He's they like, were just, playing together? Yeah. When he saw them back, you know, back in the day, back in the eighties, when they were kind of you know, sort of at the pinnacle, he was just, he was like, no one was like them, right? That's, you know, yeah. they were just, he, 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 so I think that is a good, he, you know, a good band to kind of equate to, but there's not many, there's not many when you go to that category. Yeah, because when you explain all the elements of it, uh, right. it, it could have, Rush could have been Asia, you know, like yeah. Rush could have been Toto, you know, they weren't like, they weren't session guys. And I think the difference here is like the glue of the band, you know, that makes it the difference, but it's like, those were even the better examples of that happening. You know, those are the ones we remember, you know, Asia and Toto, but it's like that those guys were capable dudes, you know, but it's like, you know, it's like they don't, I mean, they're not hurting for fans, but they don't, fans don't talk about them in the same way they would do Rush and they wouldn't even compare them in the same ways, you know? Yeah. And not even that it's just like a super band. They just, it just, I think it's just what happens with music and, and it, it doesn't mean you don't like the Asia songs when they come on or, you know, they were in the exact same period, right? They were huge and all that stuff. But 
uh, I think in particular because that it's it's a good other comparison because that Asia record sort of came out in the same and like Journey, period. kind of the same Journey, thing. Yeah. yeah, but that but that Rush record for some reason felt like cooler or darker way, or yeah, more way cooler. Yeah, you you know what I mean? It was just like it, it was just you kind of couldn't describe it when you put it on there. It was just tough. The other yeah. ones weren't tough. They were they were like I know they were kind of singing more poppy kind of songs, but the, that. I think that's you know listen I I we've I and the band and, and all have always talked about like writing a dark record you know how do you do that how do you get into that space where it's not just dreary and doomy and like the world's terrible but how do you come across with like a dark intense record it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to pull off for sure yeah and it's like even when you look at like a song like limelight to essentially to have lines that are like shakespearean but it feels like they're lived in experience because like it could have been in another example you know it's like it could have come across like sticks you know (laughs) but it's but it feels like and that's a funny thing too it's like when getty lee says it i believe he means it it's so it's right and and you figure he didn't write that that lyric going back to your thing like he is really conveying as a unit that lyric that fits the music that they put together and they believe it and you're exactly right i mean um and uh you, you saw me even just when you mentioned the song limelight i think it's impossible not to smile like yeah. it's just all of the joy that that song gave me my entire you know i'm only you know i'm 52 but i live with that record you know my whole life um and the amount of times that i've listened to limelight when it comes on or whatever you're just like it's just i don't know it's it really is it's a gift it's a gift, right? And um, I think it's what the record is. And all of the songs, even like Vital Signs, I, mean, I don't know how we'll get into it, but it's sort of like, I love when these bands have these seminal records and the last song, even in my most recent record, or all the records I've been involved in, the last songs have always been sort of like the quiet outros, right? The kind of like mm-hmm. the go yeah. home kind of songs. But they had Vital Signs where it was like, I love when you have these seminal records and the last song on the seminal record is leading the, the audience to where the band's going in a weird way, or I might be superimposing that in the way I see it. But you can see Vital Science got a little bit more kind of rhythmic and poppy in that, as opposed to like, you know, uh, whatever, right? The, 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 the first side. But anyway, <clears throat> it's, a, it's, a, it's a masterpiece. It just yeah. is it's a masterpiece. And if like, sometimes I was kind of wondering, because I think how much it flows, it's like, I struggle to even call it prog rock, but it it is, you know, but it's like, it doesn't, it's like, I think of it in the same way. It's like, I'm riding in the car with my dad, you know, it's like Tom yeah. Sawyer's on the radio, Limelight's on yeah. the radio. It's so you know? true. When, um, when Roundabout came on, my parents were like, what the hell is this? But they would listen, <laughs> but they would listen to Limelight and they would kind of understand, they knew that that was more like a pop song. And I know there's many years between those two, two songs. And it's kind of hard to compare, but I think you're right. I think the other part too, it makes it even more special is that I don't know if you really can describe it as prog rock, you know, because they don't go off into these, at least in that record, they weren't going off into mystical lands and all this kind of stuff and doing a lot of sort of like prog rocky kind of adventure stuff. Or they didn't go into the Genesis thing where it was like thematic and, you know, all these kind of interwoven sort of stories. <clears throat> And because I, I saw when I was looking in preparation that this was picked as like one of the best, 100 best of all time, like metal records. Hmm. So it's not a metal record. No. It's not an, you know, it's not like a new wave record. 
it wasn't a prog rock record. It was just, you know, you couldn't define it. Yeah, there are I, there are certain bands where it's like you could easily put them in a genre. Yeah. But it's like what I th- what comes to mind is like Neil Young or even like Tom Petty or like you know, uh, there's tons of other examples, but it's it's to certain people, it's like even Grateful Dead is that it's like they kind of stop becoming part of that genre and just become like they just kind of become the example for things. It, it, and usually yeah. I'll say in the well, they're American in the sense of North America. It's like they kind of transcended and just become like ma- American music. You yeah, know? they've become bigger yeah. than the, you know, the part that they are been told that they need to be filed. They were over, from, you know, yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right. They, uh, it's it's one of those bands that you can't define them. And for the most part, you can kind of define most bands. Maybe ninety eight percent of them. Like you yeah. said, Neil Young. Obviously, he's you know folky and singer songwriter, and that's it. Even though he had some burning rock songs, <clears throat> and he would push the envelope too, right? Like all these amazing artists where they're able to push push to a certain level, but you you still know that he's he's rocking out his songs. Mm-hmm. You know, he's rocking out his folk songs. As opposed to like Rush, where you're just like, we don't know what the hell this is, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I'm particular in that record, and um, you know, you know. And I, I the also thing I think it's kind of funny about this this record over the years of being with a lot of musicians, everyone likes it. It's it's an amazing thing. There's even like the the, the kind of most indie of indie people that I've met, or people you would never expect. Like, oh, I love Rush, and it's usually you know one of these one of these songs off of this record. Yeah, it does feel like uh, I don't see a lot of hate for it in that way. Like, I definitely do see a lot of, like, punks. Like, punks usually seem, and we're using that kind of broadly, punks, yeah. you know. Um, they seem to like this, and they seem to like ZZ Top. <laughs> it's like, yeah. these are the yeah. things we can agree on, you know. Yeah. Um, it's it's so because strange. I think, they, I think they don't see it as bloated. Mm-hmm. I think when, you know, so just by accident, I was watching... ELP, I'm telling you, maybe because I knew we were talking, but you know, I was watching some live footage of ELP from like 1970 Isle of Wight concert. And then even like in 78. And and when you look at <clears throat> Emerson, Lake and Palmer in, in like 70 at the Isle of Wight, they were from outer space. They were yeah. just like something, you, the, the talent, him on the organ, Carl Palmer on the drums. I mean, they're just like, I always imagine, imagine if a band went to South by Southwest this year and sounded like that, the internet would explode. I mean, the whole, the whole world would sink into a hole because they would not understand what they've just seen. Right. So just imagine what that was 1970, you know, and that's like the Beatles were in, but then when you look at Emerson Lincoln Palmer, like in 78, 79, and they're kind of now doing like poppier songs and it looked bloated. So I could see where the punks were just like, Oh my God, they have, you know, China symbols and all this crap, but Rush, kept sailing right through it. Like they, they just said, we're going to pay no mind and we're just going to keep rocking and do what we do and then to make the best record of their career. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. And even just thinking of, because uh, you said you've seen Rush, but when you're like watching them and they're playing, it's like someone's playing synth and then they're doing like bass with their feet and stuff. Like, and it's like, yeah, because it's like even when you look at like the credits, you know, and there were a bunch that I didn't even write down. It's like Getty Lee, bass keys, bass pedals, uh, vocals, uh, Neil Peart, drums, and other percussion. And that's just like, you know, there's so many other percussions. It's like Alex, you know, guitar and Moog pedals. So it's like 
there are points in, in their live show, I would assume, where it's like they're almost switching back and their feet are doing something, their hands are doing something, plus singing for Getty Lee. It's like you're thinking of three things that are independent of each other with this band that yeah. he's holding down, you know? I, I have to admit, you know, you, like you said, you're a baseball player and, you know, I started with the piano, but then kind of, you know, tried to teach myself bass, very rudimentary. Um, but that vision that you were just explaining was, I was in love with. Like the picture of Getty Lee with his, you know, his Rickenbacker and he had like a Moog synth and then he'd have, you know, like the pedals, you know, just, and cause he's lanky or he's so skinny and he's got the long hair and it was just the coolest thing I've ever seen. I always wished that I had like, especially cause the moves were so cool, right? And you figure it was all starting back then, right? I mean, not the moves, but the utilization of those and those pedals are not easy. Like, you know what I mean? Like anyone that's ever played one of them, just it's, it's, it's so complex and he's doing it live and I don't know, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, uh, it makes it makes it makes me uh, realize what I'm not. <laughs> yes, sure. yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. It, it's when I listen to it, it's like I don't even really get bummed about it because it's like I I I will never be that. So it's it's not something that's even slightly in my grasp to be. You know, it's like a car. Yeah, it's totally. like a stunt where a car just drives off a cliff and does a bunch of flips, <laughs> and I'm like, that's neat. You know, I don't have to feel like, oh, man, you know, because it's like when someone's slightly out of your range of something, you're like, you can aspire to it. But it's like, I it, could never aspire in many lifetimes. To no, it, I think I, I love the way you explain it. It really is someone doing an amazing stunt. Like, it's like going to Cirque du Soleil. It's like, well, I'm never going to do any of that. Whatever just happened on the trampolines and people, just, it's never going to be me. And you're exactly right. That That is Rush. Um but sometimes in, in your warped mind, when you're playing, you know, you, you, you just like have, a, you have a moment of like a, a Getty Lee or, or like all guitar players, right? You know, there's those opening guitar riffs that Alex would play. You're just like, it just, it, it, you know, you're like, <laughs> I, mean, I think it's, 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 it's so, it's, uh, it's such a physical love that Rush gives you that, I don't think any other band kind of does, right? So even now I'm sitting here at 52 imitating me wishing that I was like Neil Peart or, and mm -hmm. the and the amount of conversations that you've had from the seventies were like, who's the best drummer, you know, and he never leaves, right? You know, yeah, you don't does, talk about yeah. Carl, you never talk about Carl Palmer as much, you know, even though he's just, you know, mind bending or Bill Bruford or any of those dudes, but you always talk about Neil Peart, John Bonham. Mm -hmm. He's always in that, mount rushmore of drummers and, yeah uh, yeah yeah and i know I've, I've basically circled around the same thought a bunch but kind of comparing that thought of uh you know like getty doing three things at once but then i think of like ingve momstein it's like it's it's as much of like a um it's as much a theatric but it doesn't yeah. feel like theatrics with getty because it serves the song there's parts in like with Ingve or Steve Vai, where it's like, you feel like everything kind of stops and allows for them to exist. And that doesn't really happen as much in Rush, you know, on an album form, 
because it feels like it serves the point of the song for them that's, to do all of yeah. those things. You know, so so well stated, and maybe that's what in my mind, even as a child, when I see those images of him with the keyboard and the bass and the pedals, I think it was like that was his work area, right? That was like his his embattlements, right? That's what he was going to come onto the stage, and you know, being three, they had so much stage space, so it always looked cool. But you're exactly right; it was never a trick. It was never to be showy. It was pretty tight and minimal in a weird way, but it was so functional to everything that he did. And, you know, when he would go to it, it would just be, you know, um, years later, you know, they would kind of incorporate a lot of other things like yeah. wash machines and they kind of like got theatrical right because they were just so big and so famous. Um, but when you, I, when you look at that late seventies, early eighties version of them, it's just like, you know, wow you see those guys going up on stage and going into their their battle stage because remember alex even back then had the biggest guitar pedals he had like that guitar pedal board where even back then it wasn't just like the boss distortion and the boss flanger and whatever he it was like what is he what is he playing like what is he doing down yeah they were all probably like holy grail size you know like you know all of them together. yeah totally yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, I, I don't know why I'm thinking of it because it's like completely different. But um, it's, I think I always think of the story of like the idea of when people are playing all those pedals on stage and it's like he's actually doing it. But then the idea of like that story of like Chuck Berry where he's playing yeah. guitar, but then the amp's not really like doing anything on stage, you know, because they were like, well, he can't really be trusted to like touch his own amp. So the real amp's under the stage, but it's like, you get a sense with Rush, it's like, no, they're all pulling these levers. You know, it's not like a mock amp and it's not, you know, so it's like there is some realness there. And I think that's what a lot of times when we're saying punks in quotes kind of do, it's like, you know, they're doing all of it, you know? That's, yeah, you're right. I, again, I think it's, um, I think it goes back to the point of, you know, I think people just love genuine, you know, I, I, it's the only thing I've, I think I've learned you know, with uh, music or art or or anything is, is people can smell a mile, whether they like it or whether it's accepted in a higher level or not, whatever the, whatever the fashions might be. I do think that when you're being genuine, um, it really, it, it strikes a weird chord in people and they just know it. You know, like they just like, I might not like it or I love it or whatever it is, but it's like, I get it. I get what they're kind of doing. They're not either being affected or um, and I think you're exactly right. I think Rush in that moment was the culmination of every bit of excellence they had, pushing the boundaries as far as they could, because then they would say they kept continuing to push boundaries. But I do think that all artists just get to a point where they just, they pass the point of that moment. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it just it happens. Just, it just, it just, it just happens. Right. And uh, I, I don't know why it just, it just does. And it doesn't mean that their music's not great here or there or otherwise. But there's always a moment, right? For sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that was it. And I think it's because it's it was real. They meant, like you said in Limelight, they meant every aspect, every note, every every chord, every move. And people were like, all right, I, I love it. <laughs> I'm in. Yeah, I always think of too, like the idea of like, you know, kind of like a band like Rush becomes like so part of a conversation and becomes like a thing where just people live inside of it. But like, I guess I was talking about with Asia or Toto, or even like when I think about like Humble Pie or, you know, some of those, like those bands didn't become that conversation, but like Rush did. That's always such a weird thing. It's like, it's not, we're not 
people don't really talk about loving spoonful in the same way. You no, know? yeah, yeah, no, never. And it's a, uh, I think again, it, it goes to that, that band thing, that gang thing, that genuine part of it. Um, people, you know, people live into it. They, they just know it. And um, I, I think it's also something when you have this view in your mind that these people put this together, right? I mean, look at the, the Beatles, right? You know, and I mean, how amazing is a Paul McCartney or John Lennon? I mean, they're like the Mozart and Beethoven of our lives, but there's the Beatles, right? That's it. Yeah. The, and then it's them, you know, or, you know, all of them individually. But uh, I think it's the exact same thing with, with Rush or any amazing band. Sure. Yeah. And just thinking, of, I guess, to note like a couple of the facts around it. So this is their highest yeah. selling album in the U.S. So that's around wow. 5 million copies sold. Wow. Uh, and also the so the, the graphics on this album was done by Hugh Syme, I believe is how you pronounce his name. And he also played synth on Witch Hunt. But so to be able to create the art, it cost around nine thousand dollars and the and the label refused to pay like foot all of the bill for that. So the band had to pay for like their own art, which You're I'm like, kidding. you know, that's like, oh, I, I know what that sounds like. But for it to be Rush, you know. Especially yeah. that about to make a record that's going to sell five million copies. Back when selling records was the lifeblood of, of every record industry, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that's incredible. And that's that's something else you think you think about the uh, the artwork was unlike any artwork that they had prior. The whole thing, right, with the with the the black, and I mean I know they had the twenty one twelve, and of course, but but that one in particular, they were the title moving pictures. The artwork complemented it it's, it just hit, you know, and you don't know, and even though it's kind of gothic, right, you see this in the back of the front cover, I remember, but I remember looking at that, and dreaming into those artworks, and what museum it was going into, and what did it mean, and all that kind of stuff, and my narratives that I put into that cover, but that's hysterical that they had to pay for it themselves, yeah, yeah very typical. But I, I think, think that even the art, when you kind of break it down to that point, I wonder if the conversation, too, was to kind of, like, put it in a way that it felt tangible you know because i yeah. think that's a lot of what we're talking about because it's like when you yeah. think about fly by night and you think about some of the art from the other records it's like this feels lived in and it's there you know so but but at that time in 81 to kind of to duplicate or kind of create a setting i guess cost nine thousand dollars we could easily do it with photoshop <laughs> now yeah. yeah, right. But you know what? It would never have felt the same way. It wouldn't feel like, the same it, way. Yeah. No, because it had to be a physical. It, that's another thing too. Like you kind of can't fake, you know, I mean, obviously CGI and you can fake so many things nowadays, but it's something about that picture. It's so real holding the other picture frames. And I also kind of felt, you know, that each one of the photos or the pic, the, the frames were depicting one of the songs. So they were so guaranteed. They, I mean, they went all in, you know what I mean? They, they just said, this is it. This is all you're going to get on this record. And mm. right. There's no fluff, uh, which it, it's another hallmark of, of amazing bands at the right moment doing their best work. Right. Where they're just, they're just on, on, you know, they won't waffle on what needs, what needs to fill out the record. That's for sure. Yeah. They're, I mean, the term I feel like with like CGI would be like uncanny Valley, you know? And it's yeah. like, there's no, yeah. You know, I was watching a movie the other night on Netflix and it was like, you know, great special effects. And it's like they used a younger version of like 
the older uh, an older actor and then you're there and you're impressed by it but yeah. it's not there you know you're like great job it's almost there i don't know when uncanny valley will stop existing but it's like and i think it's kind of like back to you know kind of repeating myself it's like there's no uncanny valley with this record like nobody is you don't i don't feel like anyone's pulling the levers it's just i accept it all as it as what it is you know, and you don't feel that when you're like watching a movie that's like heavily CGI'd as opposed to like practical effects. It's like if oh, this were yeah. a movie, this would all be practical effects. It feels like. Yeah, it, it, you're I don't know the reference you're making to, but I can kind of live into it. It's like, you know, when I went and saw Star Wars, you know, when I was a kid, it was real. Somehow yeah. it I was like, oh, my God, this planet, this this Death Star exists somewhere in the world. And now, when, you know, when you watch all the, uh, <clears throat> the the new stuff, right? Even as much as I love the Mandalorians and all that kind of stuff, you know that it's it's uh, it's it doesn't have the same feel. Something something's in there that's not. Uh, um, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, but like you said, maybe they'll get there, right? Maybe they'll yeah. get there. Yeah, it's like you can't, or we haven't figured out how to like CGI on sweat. You know, there's like sweat yeah. and there's goop and there's like. A creature yeah. that's like maybe a puppet. It's probably obviously a puppet, but it feels still in that scenario. Yeah. But there's like this distance that you yeah. feel even sometimes with, you know, I'm liking it to music. You know, it's like I there's no kind of soul there, you know, yeah. and I feel that a lot when people are, you know, kind of showing me their best scales. A hundred thousand percent. That's what I mean. It's the soul. It's the genuine aspect. It's the... Um, digging deep into what the work is and it's a people thing right you know it's it's home cooking versus you know a, a fine restaurant just there's there's something there's something in the realness when you can capture it artistically it just transcends it doesn't matter the form it just doesn't matter um when they're able to hit it it's uh and it's such a rare thing right just i mean literally we're talking about how much music did they do over the course of all those years? And we're talking about this one record as like the high watermark, which it, it was, right? For sure. For sure. So what I want to ask is kind of like looking at this record and then as you, yeah, I guess, like you were saying, you went into like piano classes and then kind of writing your own music. Um, and as a bass player, how did this like affect your songwriting directly? Um, I would say without a doubt, Rush is absolutely in the top 10 to 20 bands that made me continue to want to do music for the rest of my life. Um, to those images like I was talking to you about earlier that were so powerful in my, my mind, right? Um, and when I started music, I really did just focus on the piano, but it wasn't until I became a teenager, because you know, you figure in the early eighties, the piano was just really out. You know what I mean? It was super, super out, you know? and as much as I have my Billy Joel phase and stuff like that, it just, it was tough to be like a piano player in the early eighties, you know, especially with all the synth bands. And my idols were really the bass players in all the bands, you know? So whether it was Chris Squire or Getty Lee or Sting or, you know, the list goes on and on and on. It was always sort of like these bass players that were just so cool. And I, I would definitely say that that was one aspect. I wanted to look like them. I wanted to feel like them. You know, I wanted to have that long instrument, that strap, that, that they, believe me, I'm the worst bass player 
in the, the history of bass players. But um, it was it, that was so impactful that Rush kind of drove me towards the bass to kind of learn, and even tried to drive me towards the bass pedals. We took them out many times, and I've always failed miserably. But uh, I think from the first part was just that, just the physical, visual sense of what he was doing, I wanted to do, for sure. Yeah. And since you're a left-handed bass player like myself, um, yeah. what was that journey like? Because, okay, so growing up for me, <laughs> my dad would always put a right-handed guitar in my hand. And sometimes yeah, yeah. it would flip over, but mainly he'd be like, learn it the regular way. And I wasn't like getting like forced to do it. He was just like, if you're going to learn it, this is the guitar we have. Yeah, and it just, right. none of it made sense to me. It was like <laughs> looking at the books and then I had to transpose them backwards. I was like, it's not going to work. And then eventually like late into my teens, we could say like, basically I was like 20. I wow. got a left-handed bass. Wow. You did it that long. Yeah, I did Holy it that God. late. And I, cause I had been like wow. plinking along it, not making sense and stuff. And then yeah, like yeah, I was yeah. a singer and like punk bands and stuff. And then eventually it was like, I got to be able to contribute more in this process because I'm like sitting here waiting for you all to write songs. Now everyone yeah, wants yeah, for yeah. me to write songs, but you know, but I was like, I got to be able to contribute in some way, you know? And then when I got a left-handed bass, I was like, this makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's like, no kidding. you know, wow. uh, yeah. And so, and I know you did it with like a, uh, I guess a right-handed bass upside down, but did that just like come to you that way? Or what was that process? The, um, you know, that's an amazing story, by the way. It's super unique for, it's almost like you were kind of in a bit of a, a, a bass guitar prison for a number of years where they were forcing you yeah. back in the old days to not be left-handed. Yeah. Are you left-handed? Are you left -handed I'm very left-handed. Yeah, me too. Right, yeah. I, I literally can do nothing with this side mm -hmm. of, you know, my brain and body. Um, so, you know, wow, I can't, I, I don't think I've ever met anyone that was kind of forced to go that many years doing that, but I'm so glad you, you flipped. Yeah, another part of that story, sorry to cut you off, was yeah, like, no. even when I played probably my first official show as a bass player uh, from like being a singer. You did in a few it right? Bands, yeah, uh, no, what I did, though, was I was so scared of, like, a string breaking, which happens so... I don't know if I've had a string break in, like, <laughs> 15 or more years of playing. Uh, but, like, I I was like, I have to learn the... I have to learn the whole set on a right-handed bass upside down so that in case this happens. No way. Yeah, eventually I got a backup wow. bass, but, you know, you know I was... <laughs> I was right. it's so I'm rare. still yeah. scared of it because I can't, like grab someone else's base you know wow that is so crazy um uh wow god bless man that, that really that that i'm, I'm serious for, for people that play bass and you know they'll they'll feel for you like i am like right now like i couldn't even imagine that fear and and not only that you know with with the bass after so much time it really becomes a, a, a physical thing because it's fat it's big and yeah it's a physical enjoyment right you know and um I couldn't imagine it doing the other way where I have to now think the strings differently. That would just be a nightmare for me. But um, so, yeah, wow, that's a good story. Mine's not nearly that kind of glamorous. It was just that I played the piano and I was a super nerd, right? Like most musicians were. I never left my house. I didn't really go out. I didn't socialize. I just sort of hid in my attic like a insane recluse, you know, for my teens um, and I just grew into this world and I had uh, an acoustic guitar that was at the house and I just taught myself upside down backwards, the acoustic first. 
and just to learn the big Mel Bay chords. And then I got to the concept of, you know, it was like, it really, it really was the Paul McCartney's, the Getty Lee's. I was just like, I want to play bass. And not only that, I could never, I, I think I was, I could move too quickly on the piano to have the patience to now move quickly on the guitar. You get what I mean? Because it, it, the guitar requires such a different mechanism and it's, I just didn't have the patience for it. So I got a bass, my parents, my mom and dad bought me a Yamaha BB300 series bass from, from Zaff's Music Store in Philadelphia, which is like, you know, anyone on the East Coast might know that it's like a very famous old music store. And um, they bought me this bass. It was, you know, uh, I don't know. I just, I remember the case. I remember coming home. I, I thought it was like, I thought it immediately made me as cool as I possibly could be. And, um, and I just played it upside down and backwards. And I, and I never, I never felt the need to kind of learn the other way. Uh, but when I was at that music store, I remember them saying, do you want a left-handed bass? And I'd already gone too far down the progression of learning the guitar. I said, no, I can't, I can't go like you. That's why I'm saying, I can't believe you did it. Like, I can't believe you did all those yeah. years because once you get to a point, it's like, I, I can't, I can't turn back. I'm, I'm too far down. It the wouldn't have been good. Like, you know, but I, I sort of figured it in a way it's like, I could go through the set if I needed to, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I didn't do it too long. Like, I'm glad I didn't go years of like, Oh, now I gotta learn it the other way. But like, Forget yeah, it. it's like how I started with it because I was like, it's it's gonna yeah. happen, you know. Yeah, but it's gonna happen. Yeah, because I was watching, you know, some kind of recent uh, videos of actually any of the videos that I watch of like the Rins and Eon yeah. Station, um, and I was like, he's he's still doing it, you know. He's still upside yeah. down, you know, upside down bass, you know, essentially. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> and I, I I must confess is that I still have that exact clean bass. I have played that bass at every show I've ever done since I was 16 years old. And um, it's, it's a, it's a bass that I love. And uh, you know, uh, Jerry, again, the drummer for the Rams and uh, you know, now playing with the new music, he, uh, we went, I went, because it happened when you, when I play upside down, the horns on the bass were wrong. Yeah. So for me, for a strap, I couldn't kind of do like the physical stuff that I wanted to do because the strap would pop off. So I needed to have the strap go into the neck of it. So we cut off, we cut off the, the horns of the bass. Like we literally in his backyard, I remember we were standing on the deck and his, his dad was, you know, a guy that built houses and he gave us the saw. And I remember him telling me, he's like, don't, don't kill yourself. But we sawed the bass off. We almost cut the neck off. You know, there's, there's still, there's still, there's still cuts in the neck of the bass from when he overshot the saw and sawed into the frets. And I was like, no, I might need some of those frets. Um, so it's um, it's definitely it's an instrument that I have loved, and I have just been such an unloving partner to that bass with the amount of things that I've done to it. But it has it has bolts, it has screws, it has you could name it. I mean, it actually went into a flood. I, I sank my car in college, and it was submerged as into a flood. And I remember taking it from the back of the car under like all that water, and it just lives. It's like, it's like Lazarus. It's like, I don't know. It, it's Rasputin. So I never, I never go away from it. Even though I got a brand new bass, a new fancy one that my wife got me like 1973 Fender. It's beautiful. It, oh, it's like, you know, it's like you guys, you know, love cars, like driving like super fast car. But I go back to that Yamaha bass. Anyway, I know we're going well, to Well, I did that. Uh, there was a, basically I came across like a lefty bass. And I had a friend that played bass upside down too. 
And then when I saw her, like she, when she came down for tour, I was like, I have this bass if you want to do it. And she took it from me and she was like, I might learn it the regular way. Cause she was saying how like yeah. playing it upside down kind of hurt her back. Cause it kind of pulls yeah, in a weird way. Cause it's not designed it's so to, yeah, you know, correct. and you know, cause she would do the same. She would almost like put, almost like put the strap over the horn. So it kind of pushes it down, I think is what she did. And then, but I went up to Philly uh, to like stay at their warehouse that they they lived at, and then that base was just in the corner, like it just had uh, like cobwebs on it. And I wasn't I wasn't bummed about it because it, it it was like a free base, but it was just like no, you're it, this is gonna be you forever, you know. This is just yeah. how you are, you know. Yeah, and I, I think you're exactly right, but but she's right because that's why I cut the horns because it just even to this day when I play it, it goes immediately straight down because the weight is still too heavy, yeah. so I have to hold it. And it is like holding like a tank. I mean, it's, it's really a hell of a, a, a machine. Um, but again, you know, I was dreaming about a Rickenbacker, right? So because of Paul McCartney and because of Getty Lee and Chris Squire and all the basses, you know, all that stuff that they would play. But whenever I would do a right-handed Rickenbacker upside down, it was just the end of the world because it had so many knobs. It has a lot of knobs. Yeah. It has a lot of knobs. It's like, it's like, it's like a, this machine of a bass guitar and I always because the sound is cool but I kept the Yamaha because it only had two two knobs yeah (laughs) I think like the bass player in the band has a really cool bass yeah Uh, cool like the Gibson I think it's like the Gibson Ripper with the cello head is that what it is I believe so and it's like well that would never because I was like is there a left-handed version of that and it's like no there's not yeah uh you know just say I've thought about this like well I could cut it I could modify I could like figure out some way to put the, you know, cause I wonder like, do you ever feel probably not now because it's been so long. Do you ever feel like, like the knobs do get in, in the way or you don't even think about it anymore? I assume. You know, it's so fun. Uh, if I had to play like a, a kind of one of those fancier basses that have a lot, I would feel like they're in, in the way all the time. I would feel them on my, my inner arm and like my knobs are actually broken in place. Okay. So they've been broken for years. Like they're screwed in. You see there's plates like they're, I was in college and I stepped on it and I had the cord in it. So the jack is broken. So I had to get like this huge washer to put the jack in just to keep the plug from going out. And then, so I don't even have this. So (laughs) this is, I mean, it really is. That's why the bass is just this, that bass in particular is something magical. And so they've been broken in place. I can't twist them. I've been, I haven't been able to twist them in like 20 some years. Yeah. They're just on. Thank God. So. Yeah, I I think about that too because like sometimes I watch bass players and they're doing things where it's like guitarists yeah. do this a lot too where they're like use they the slide. knob to kind of and it's <laughs> like I have never done that in my life and I can do it on my bass but it's just never been in my head. It's like what you get yeah. is what you get with me. It's like I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm plugging it in the amp and there you go. You get the low tones and everybody's got to live with it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just like I love that kind of tone uh, in the Wrens. That's just like it's like you know it's you, and I love uh-huh. that. That I feel like that carried over to your your new band. Uh-huh. Thank um, you. And I I love hearing that. It's just like oh, that's Kevin, you know. Uh-huh. And that that's like an interesting thing, where it's like no matter what a person is, you can kind of like hear them in the project, you know. Ah, uh, it's so nice. It is. Yeah. I, I think it's partly you know. Um, yeah, it's it's how you play, how you approach it, and um, and I do think there's levels of like where your talent is, right? So I could never be Getty Lee, so I couldn't do a running bass line to save my life. I don't think I've ever done one. Or I'm not McCartney, where I loved all the the melodic stuff. No, it's mine's always been super rud- rudimentary, 
you know, always quasi, you know, U2-ish, but, you know, with more kind of like, kind of uh, ghost notes or more kind of, uh, a lot of palm muting, right? I think because I'm left-handed and because I play upside down, my low notes are always, I'm playing them the most, like most bass players, but I have the weight of my hand. I'm really muting a lot of it quite often. Like I really love that sound where I put it back on the bridge and I hold my hand in and I get like, it kind of darkens the sound a little. I yeah. know we're getting into the no, tech yeah. side of it. Well, I mean, yeah, I, it's I love that part of the conversation because it's, it, you know, it's like I, yeah, it's like there was even parts where it's, I thought that's how I was going to have to learn. So I'm familiar with, with yeah. that. Or even like I've seen, I saw Dick Dale uh, and oh, just wow. like kind of seeing that kind of like, I love that idea. It's like probably the things we're talking about, these are mistakes, but they're not, yeah. once you get so no. far away from it, it's like, well, would someone yeah. be like, hey, Dick Dale, you know, these are mistakes. You know, like when he wraps his hand, he wraps his hand over. Oh, kinda, yeah. And it's like, who would ever tell Dick Dale, hey, that's not correct. You know? Yeah. yeah but, you know, but not. we kind of do that. Sometimes I feel like people do that with like younger kids. And, you know, it's like if it doesn't, you know, if it's not like just a bad habit, but sometimes even those bad habits, like give I'm that totally, character, you know? Oh, man, dude, I am totally with you. I think it, the, uh, whether it's in, it all depends, right? If you're really going to go and you learn from recording and all that kind of stuff, but uh, certainly being in the Reds for as long as uh, we, we didn't just like the mistakes. We always amplified them mm -hmm. and loved them and tried to focus on them. And I can give you a thousand examples of massive mistakes where it's like we built the song around the mistake because mm -hmm. we were so enamored with the mistakes um and still am right so i love bands that leave in their mistakes and oddly enough we kind of you know in that way we always got that from like a mighty python thing we were super into mighty python right comedy and they always had like these short problems and breakups and stuff like that so we always tried to infuse those into songs right so little weird clips and but you're i think you're hitting on something that's super important for so many bands our mistakes but it all depends on what kind of band you want to be you know what yeah. i mean if you want to be I don't know if you really want to be the top sounding record, you can't have mistakes and you got to figure that, that out. It's, 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 you gotta, you gotta know what you're going for. Right. For sure. Yeah. So like the start of your current band, Eon station. Uh, so it came from the Wrens, like from what I was yeah. reading about, yeah. it's like a lot of what you originally put together was kind of your compositions from the Wrens and then kind of like, well, I'm going to do my own thing separately of them. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's that's that, that's definitely correct. Um, everything that I've ever done uh, up until this part, or at least half of this part, has been for the Rens. You know, since I was, you know, I started the band. I started the band when I was 17, right? You know, I got the guys together, and uh, so every, my whole life has been dedicated to that. But yeah, the new records has components of what was going to be uh, for future stuff. Yeah. And kind of inserting myself again with it. Like I yeah. think about like I've been in a band for it's like 10 years and it's like there's wow. there's a lot of elements of the band that are like, oh, well, they have to deal with me, too. But it's like, well, we have to deal with this schedule. We have to deal with this thing. Yeah, so totally. But it's like yeah. at the end of the day, it's like but these are the people I I want to play with, even warts yeah. and all, you know, and yeah, that's what I felt like a lot of the story of the Wrens, at least from my perspective, has been, it's like, no question. well, maybe it's not moving at a clip that would have been this, but it, it's just, this is the Wrens. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I think, um, like I said, you know, I've said it before, there's no uh, 
Rens fan bigger than me, right? You know, um, it's just the love of my life. And, um, and we were, I mean, we lived together for 15 years in the same house. I mean, it was a mission like no other mission. And with a lot of, you know, hard times, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, hopes and dreams and stuff like that, but done together and very supportive uh, all, all around for each person. Um, and then I think as you kind of, you know, really go through it, you know, you figure we've been, we've been a band for over 30 years, right? It's a long time. And I think when you get to a point, you get in your later part of your life where, you know, you have kids and you have all this kind of, you know, other desires and things kind of come into play that you realize that you, especially in my situation, because we hadn't done music for over a decade. I hadn't done music longer than your band's even been together. And I, I just, just think about it, right? Yeah. And I've been, I've, been, I've, been, I've been waiting for longer than that, you know, even more. So I think, you know, at some point, just like now in my life, I just wasn't, I wasn't enjoying music anymore. It wasn't part of my life and I missed all that and I wanted to have it back in. And um, that was it. You kind of get to more simple back to the beginning basics where it's just like, I want to get some friends together and jam in my mom's house or whatever, the garage. Yeah, you know? it so is interesting because like, I feel like what's so hard about being in a band for so long, and I know I'm telling the person that's like, well, you don't even have to tell me, you know, no, but no, it's no, like, no, it's ever, you kind of, yeah. the, the expectations almost keep rising, but it's like to remind yourself, it's like, it could just go back into a basement and that's where it started. And that is what fulfilled me. You know, you start putting these expectations that really no one's asked of you, but they just start being there. You know? I think, I think you're exactly right. And I do think there was a bit of that with us, you know, for sure, because we really kind of had such a nice uh, positive strike with the Meadowlands and that just sort of grew. And the longer that shadow grew, kind of like the more impending kind of, you know, outcome what it was going to be. But I must confess, I never cared about it at all. I never looked back and say, oh, it's not going to be. As a matter of fact, I would say often it's never going to be as loved as that record. It's just like Rush. They're never going to have a moving pictures. Yeah. You can't, you, you just can't. And I think if you're in a band that has your moving pictures, you have to relish it and love it and realize what it is and not compete with it and not have it overshadow you and, and not have it devour you. And I do think in, in a way it kind of devoured, you know, a lot of time for us, um, you know, yeah. uh, where, where I just was like, there's no, there's just, it's just fit because, because, because why is because when, when the people who love the Meadowlands hit that record, they were in a space in their life to love it. They're never going to have the exact same reaction 25 years later. They just physically, emotionally cannot do it. Yeah. Now it's going to be another thing like, oh, I really like that song. It reminds me of the old song. That's where it goes. Yeah. And sometimes I think about even just with like starting my band, it's like, it was like, oh, we like, let's just say like Buffalo Tom or like we like yeah. lungfish. Yeah. And it's like, awesome. well, I already, yeah. I already like have these examples of things that, you know, weren't like the biggest example. So whatever did I expect? You know, these are the yeah. bands I love. So it's like, you know what, you know, it's like I put myself there and I'm happy with it, but it's, it's kind of like you almost have to remind yourself, like, you know, it's, it's good to be in those places, you know? It is, but I do think that uh, bands can be a, uh, uh, you know, you can have delusions, right? Of, yeah. of sometimes like, because we knew what we were doing. Like, we knew we loved mistakes. We knew we liked these weird songs. We did all this kind of stuff. We tried to set ourselves apart by being unique in weird ways. But then we were like, well, we should be the most, you know, we should be on the radio all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's like, but you, you can't, right? You know, and I think 
you learn that stuff over time that you have to sort of, you know, um, I think when you start to learn who you are and enjoy who you are, that that's when it, it goes back to being genuine, right? And um, like, um, so leading up to the Meadowlands and all that, you know, we were extremely very genuine and, and felt that that was the end of the road even then, right? We were yeah. already washed up to begin with. Yeah. And I guess like, so that, you know, like we said, led into Eon Station. So do you feel like it was able to, by going into observatory and, you know, sub pop and really just the, the action of starting Eon Station, do you feel like you were able to kind of like rediscover that spark that you were kind of looking for? Yeah. Or, oh, yeah. absolutely. It was, um, uh, and, and not that, it was never, it was never designed. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you always hear these stories like, oh, did you plan it? None of it was planned. Oh, yeah. None of it was like really. There was no. There was no discussion about it. Sub Pop were very nice because they supported the Rens for a long time, um, and they were like, "Yeah, you know, you know." Uh, actually, they never said anything. I just went back to the basement. I went back, you know, with COVID and you know, and my kids and and just wanted to kind of live and enjoy life. I just went back and uh, recorded six songs in you know five hours in a studio, which I had never done, uh, and then kind of played the rest of the guitars right here in this, in the room upstairs, right? Just off of Bad Amp and that's what's on the record. And, you know, Tom Bojour kind of made it sound a lot better. And, uh, but it was real fast, real punk rock. So yeah, it found that thing where it's like, I don't care. It's, 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 it's good enough. It's fine. Yeah, I think, you know, it just, you know, kind of thinking about myself, it's like, I have to remind myself, it's like, when I had mistakes on like our first album or something, it's like, it didn't matter. And it still doesn't matter. You know, like, it's like, it truly does not matter. It's like, you know, if that, if that kind of like is the, if that's like the impediment to like, not be able to like express your art, then embrace those mistakes. But see, that's, I really think that's a super, you know, evolved, enlightened, however you want to say it, because it's taken me forever, right? Because we lived with so many, you know, narratives like, oh, we have to be better than this, this band, or we, we have to be successful. We have to have this kind of degrees of whatever it is. Um, And on with Eon Station, I'm just extremely proud of the songs, right? I'm just, when I listen to it top to bottom, it's sort of where I am at this point. It's what I wanted to say. It's, it came across the way I, when I, when it comes on, I don't cringe. You know, like when you listen to your old stuff and you listen to your music, you're like, I don't mind the mistakes. I actually kind of like it. And that's the best space to be in because then no one can touch you. doesn't matter. Good reviews. And actually, I've lived a, everyone knows that in the band knows. I don't really, I've never read reviews, even when we were nobodies. Good reviews, bad reviews. I just never saw them as, just didn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Because we would play shows to lots of people. We play shows to, to a bartender. You know, it just, it, do you like what you're doing? And if you like what you're doing, you got to do it as much as you can stomach it, right? That's yeah, that's almost what keeps me yeah, with any project I'm doing. It's like all those things, but it's like I can't let go of that. Well, I do like what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's like, oh, I guess it's almost like a it's a prison you're happy to be in in a way. It's like, well, I chose to be this, you know, so it's yeah. like and you it's, have to kind of recenter. It's who you are as a person and you can't, that's, that's also, I think what, you know, and, and my wife helped me as I was, cause I had, you know, everyone has huge fears like, oh, I can't do it without the band and I'm too afraid. And then, you know, people are going to hate it and all that kind of stuff. And like, why should I do it? And it goes, you know, you go down this huge list. But I think what you're saying is exactly right. Is that it is you, right? You know, you are music, dude. And what you give and how you kind of share it with your friends and your audience, that is like a gift. I mean, I know it sounds kind of like hippie-ish, but it, it, 
it, it really, when you get into it, it really does kind of change your life if that's what you're, that's, as long as you don't have false pretense. You get what I mean? If I said, hey, why, why am I not, you know, as big as this band or that band? Well, there's a load of reasons for that, but are you happy with who you are and what you're doing? And um, yeah, I, I, I'm very proud of uh, the music that that's on the record. Yeah. And before I truly let you go, I guess during South by Southwest, I unfortunately saw a video <laughs> of, uh, um, so, so I guess if, so you had an accident recently during South by Southwest and I, I didn't really ask you, so I don't know the answer to this. How are you doing after that? And I guess if you want to explain what happened. Yeah. Um, well, uh, ever since we started music back when I was 16, it, the Wren's experience and even just us on stage was a very physical kind of encounter, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. it was many bands that we loved everything from like, you know, Bad Brains to, you know, all of our influences were like sort of punk inspired, really like physical on stage, you know, and Fugazis and all that kind of stuff. So we grew up kind of doing it. I've always been, I've always had an, a physical aspect to performances. And, you know, and I've jumped off enough things in my life to, you know, prove it. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, uh, time wears on and I was kind of overly excited because I was really excited to kind of just have the show. It was with friends. It was in this, like, you know, this great kind of bar in South by Southwest. It was right, nice. You know, uh, it was a perfect night. I, I got overly excited. I did a jump. I kind of came down like, in, you know, uh, you know, uh, and, I don't know, like, you know, kind of like your classic rock and roll fashion. And unfortunately my knee popped, my kneecap popped and my leg doubled under me and I just went straight down. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was sort of a unique experience. And, uh, but you know, it's so funny. I think the only difference, I've fallen off so many stages. I mean, I, I can't even, like Texas, where I've, I've just, I was just, the band would laugh and I just, we would just literally fall off. You just go yeah. off. But this one was, a little unique now because people videotape it. It's a whole different world now, right? You know, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, long story short, um, I had a patella tendon tear. So my kneecap went up into my thigh. I had to get it, you know, surgically kind of put back into place. And uh, so now I'm on crutches for the next five weeks. And uh, if anything, it's definitely another story and a kind of storyboard career yeah sure. yeah i had a I actually he was a guest of the pod uh casey yeah. from this band virginity he was playing a show in florida and it was like he hadn't it didn't seem like he jumped up at all but i guess some movement yeah. it was it yeah. looked like from it looked like he was just standing there and then fell over you know like wow. even the the video i saw of you it's like you you were jumping but you weren't doing anything like you know it's so funny yeah. yeah like all my friends like like, believe me, dude, I, I've done from heights of like yeah. ASAPs, like the stacks, right? You know, I've, 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 there's pictures of me doing it. We're just it. grooving around. <laughs> but you know, it was so funny. That's what it was. It was like sort of act the jump. And that's what my buddy said. It's like, you just were walking. And then yeah. I just, it just, it just like the, the shutter kind of went up. <laughs> you just, know what I mean? when, it, when it's time, it's oh, is time. That, is that what happened to your buddy? Is that the same kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, he just, uh, he was just kind of standing there. I'm not sure what part of the, I mean, it's the knee, but yeah, he yeah, just, yeah. it just went down. That was it. It was like, I think second song into the set. He just fell uh, over and that was it. He got carried maybe, away by an ambulance. And maybe know. if you could uh, share my email with him and you stay, you know, you will stay email friends. And I would love to talk to him about it. That listen, it, kindred spirit stuff. I love it. I love, and I love that he did it on stage, which makes yeah. me not feel so lonely. Right. Yeah. That's for sure. 
But yeah, I super appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I guess, you know, anyone listening, please, you know, pick up the new Eon Station Record Observatory. It's out now on Sub Pop. And I guess any parting things you want to say about either no, Rush or... No. Yeah, thank you so much. And I think uh, it's just, you know, a super inspiring conversation to talk about, and you know, our our idols, you know, with Rush and the incredible music. Uh, and, you know, and thank you for the support, you know, from the Wrens now over to Eon Station. And, uh, you know, who knows where the future is going to go and hopefully for, for more music. And I would love to hear your music and, and best, best to your band as well, right? I, I super appreciate it. Thank you so much. Welcome back. Thanks again to Kevin for coming on the pod. Don't forget to check out the new Aeon Station album, Observatory, out now on Sub Pop Records. Okay, next time on the pod, we're talking with Augusta Koch of the band Gladi and previously of Kayatana. We talked about Riley Kylie's second album, Execution of All Things, so stay tuned. Once again, check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Lastly, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do that sort of thing. Reviews definitely help. Thanks as always to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. Okay, see you next week.